Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I am proud to say that this episode is brought to you by a company whose inflatable rafts I've been using for nearly a decade. Watermaster boats have taken me on countless adventures when I've relied on portability and safety to get me from point A to point B. The Watermaster folds into an extremely compact package, and its frameless design allows for a complete assembly and disassembly in under 10 minutes. Whether it be for a simple day of fishing on a steep tributary or a week-long fly-in trip in the remote mountains of BC, the Watermaster has always been the one tool necessary to make it all happen. I can't thank them enough for their support and quality service throughout the years. You can find them in the back of every serious steelheaders truck or at www.bigskyinflatables.com. Joan Wolf is one of the most respected women in fly fishing, and rightfully so. At almost 90 years old, Joan has been a lead player in fly casting, instruction, demonstrations, competitions, and sheer class. I've been a longtime fan of Jones and always hope to one day have the opportunity to learn more about her life, away from the casting books and what I'd seen on old tapes. After a year of corresponding, Joan agreed to sit down with me here on Anchored, so I was quick to book my flight to New York. In this episode, Joan and I talk about her timeline, and I finally get to ask her some of the many questions I've been dying to know the answers to. I was born in New Jersey, around the area of Patterson, New Jersey. Okay, and that was in... 1926, apparently. <laughs> like, it's hard to think, because I can't think back that far. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and my dad had an outdoor store, uh, hunting, oh. fishing, dogs. He wrote an outdoor column for the Patterson Papers. 
He eventually became uh, commissioner for the state of New Jersey on fish and game. He was with a group that did uh, giant bluefin tuna tournaments. He wasn't competing. He was a judge. So he's really the, you know, and I re- and he used to go on these moose hunting trips in the fall. And I always remember what his uh, gear smelled like when he came back, his sleeping bags. That was, to me, that was north. Oh. <laughs> Even though I thought it was like eight miles away, you know, <laughs> at the other end of town was north, you know. But I, but that, that was the beginning of my connection, I would say, to the out of doors. Do you have any siblings? Yes, I have two brothers who were younger than I. Okay. And actually, my dad started to teach them how to cast and shoot. They, you know, and ignored me because I was a girl. <laughs> was this fly casting? Fly casting and plug casting. That's okay. all there was in those days. Uh, spinning didn't come in until 1947 or 48, 47, I think. So it was only plug casting with a revolving spool reel. But I had been turned on to fishing when I was five or six. One night, my dad invited me to go along with my mother in and himself to Greenwood Lake, New Jersey, for bass fishing. And dad loved to fish with a fly rod and, and bugs, surface, uh, surface bass bugs. And so it was everything should have been fine, but my mother didn't know how to row. <laughs> not really. And she was not a fisherman. So all night long, he's saying, Ina, you're too close to the lily pad. Ina, I can't reach that far. <laughs> and, so, and then finally he, he hooked the bass. And he let me hold the rod, and I didn't do, know what to do with the rod, and the bug came out of the bass's mouth, and I was sure it was the end of the world. He said, no, I was going to release it anyway. Oh. So seeing that bass explode from those lily pads, this dark place with no sign of anything, and the life of the bass, you know, all of that, that's really what turned me on to fishing. But at the end of the night, I went out of there thinking, it's much better to be the fisherman than the rower. <laughs> so, I have always been the fisherman and not the rower. Just so, like I've had two husbands who tie flies. I don't tie flies. Oh, no, I didn't no, know that. I have tied some flies, but I never got turned on by the materials. And that's what you have to you know, do in order to want to do this and create. I'm not artistic. I'm not a creative person. I'm a much better second person where I, I back up somebody who's got brilliant ideas. <laughs> like me. Like me. <laughs> From there, you're getting into fishing, and you're, what and, happens next? I mean, well, then, so, so one day I, I wanted to uh, try fly casting. This is when Dad was teaching my brothers, and he would, they would go to the casting club every Sunday morning at a pond near our house. Patterson Casting Club was very active. So one day after school, I asked my mother if I could borrow my father's fly rod because I wanted to try it. I just loved the look of it, of course. So she said yes. I went down to the pond. There was a, a dock, and I made, you know, I put it together. I did some kind of waving around, and the two pieces came apart, and the tip went down the line into the water, into the lake. Wait, so to, to be lost forever? Well, it turned out not to be, thank God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So I went home crying, worried about what my father was going to do. And the, the, our neighbor got home from work before my dad came home, and he got a rake and, and managed to get the tip of the rod 
So I was saved. My mother was saved. You know. Did he ever find out? Oh, sure. Okay. I mean, our house had to tell everything. <laughs> okay, got it. I had an Italian father and a Scottish mother. Oh, really? Yes. In fact, I, as an aside, I am going to be inducted into the Italian American Sport Hall of Fame this Saturday night in Chicago. Congratulations. I'm flabbergasted because it's full of DiMaggio's and all of the, you know, basketball, baseball, car racing, all kinds of things. So I'm the first person related to angling that's going in. Oh, that is, that is really amazing. Congratulations. Amazing. <laughs> well, your maiden name, actually, come to think of it, is, is Italian, yes, isn't so it? We called it, it was Americanized to Salvato, but it's Salvato is what it should be. Yeah. Oh, it all makes sense. Yeah. That's why I, I keep putting it in when I sign things because I'm not Wolf. I am Joan Salvato. I made my own reputation before I married Lee. Yeah, you, you really yeah. did. Yeah. Now let's let's talk okay. about where it goes from there. So my dad then, when he knew about it, and he just invited me to go along, and so I started casting with the club on Sunday mornings, just like my brothers. And you think you're about what age at that point? Ten. Wow. <laughs> so what did your brothers think of that? As long as they could beat me once in a while, it was okay. Well, that's fair. Some healthy competition. <laughs> yeah, they weren't as intense about it all as I was. Okay. I also started dancing lessons when I was 10. Oh. Both things. Okay. okay. Then when I was in high school, and I started teaching dancing when I was 12. Wow. Right? That's 10 really years old. Yes, 10 years old. And all I was doing teaching was teaching the class that I was in one step at a time because it was a woman who was the main teacher. And so she took me to someone else to get lessons. Okay. And then I would come back and teach a step to the kids I used to, was with. I mean, right. You know, it was a very primitive thing, but it's teaching. <laughs> yeah. And so when I was in high school, it was, I went, I took a college prep course and the uh, guidance counselor said, you know, what do you want to do with your life? I don't know. What do you like to do? I like to cast and dance. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Basically the same answer you would get today if you told somebody. <laughs> right. So I had two brothers and so we, and we were middle class. I would guess so. The idea of of money for college was going to be for the book for the the boys. boys yeah. So I had a choice, though. Um, girls in my situation would become teachers, nurses, or secretaries. So I was sent to secretarial school, just a one year school. Right. My one big regret in life is that I never got to college, true college. But otherwise, my life has turned out very well without that college education. Yeah. And so I did work in New York City for four months, and at that time I was making $25 a week. And on Saturdays I was teaching dancing and making $20. And we suddenly, and the, the, the woman who had been teaching me had been a national track champion. She was a national 100-yard dash champion. She was supposed to go to the Olympics and she tore a tendon in her foot and couldn't go. And that was 19, it would have been 1932 for her. But she was the woman who gave me the joy of living. She just really, you know, we didn't use the word mentor in those days, but that's what she was. She was, she was just wonderful for me. And she was the one who talked my father into giving, letting me have dance lessons. Because that was also a time dancing led you down the wrong track. Oh, that's, well, yeah. <laughs> you were talking with, you know, the 30s. And so her name was Eleanor Egg. 
and uh, her family had been in show business, that kind of thing. So she said, all right, we have too many people for one day's teaching, so we either have to give up or open a full-time studio. So I gave up my secretarial job in New York, and I was not quite 18 at this I age. was going to ask yeah, you that. Yeah. How old were you? Yeah, I was 16 when I graduated from high school. Okay. And so we opened the uh, dancing school in 1944, and it grew uh, beautifully. She taught ballet and acrobatics, and I taught tap and baton twirling. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we grew this to 1952 was when I left. We had 265 pupils wow. when I left. That's a successful school. And that's when I was making $150 a week. Right. And decided one morning that I had to get out of the dancing school and go into fishing, try to make a living in fishing, or I would end up being an old-time dancing teacher, you know, at age 75, which I thought was the end of the world <laughs> at that time. <laughs> that is a huge decision to make. I, yes, but it came all by itself. How? No, I, you don't know. This, I mean, I'm sure it happens to other people, you know, that suddenly uh, the, the routine of things, the way you're living gets old, yeah, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, it's monotonous, it really yeah, does. I guess it is. You don't think of it in those terms, but you suddenly say, there must be something else I could do. So I then I left there. I took a job in the department store for for six weeks for $27. A week, 70 cents an hour. Pay cut. And I spent a lot of time trying to convince the girls who were selling blouses to leave and do something else. (laughs) (laughs) So then my only other way of trying to earn money was through sportsman shows. Right. So I did those because they were very big in those years. Mm -hmm. You had Sparky the Seal. You had casting. You had uh, retrievers, you know, Dogs. Right. Yeah. Sparky, they actually had a seal at Sportsman's show? Oh, yes. Wow. And there were people who, the guides from Canada would come down and they would have jostling uh, things where they'd be hitting each other with rubber things (laughs) on the stick and log rolling. Right. There was one fellow who had a Dalmatian that that rolled on logs too. And I tried that. And I just finally got so tired from getting back up, (laughs) I gave it up. So sportsman shows have changed a lot over the years then. Oh, well, they're now more specific. Yeah. I yeah. I haven't been to one in 10 years. So no. I don't know what to do. Were there, were there a lot of people who were doing fly casting at the shows back then? No. Just you? No, no. There were, actually there were one or two other women who were doing it. Mm. Yeah. So uh, who would that have been back in those days? Well, there was a girl where, I, that's the other thing. I got to go to work for, Garcia, so let me let me go back to where we were. <laughs> <laughs> the sportsman shows were ten days long in those days, and I remember going to Cleveland. I went to Cleveland more than once, and it, it was ten days for four hundred dollars, and that, that with no expenses paid. You know, you had to do your own thing. I then I, I but I got to travel with with that. I remember going to British Columbia by getting on a, a train out of Cleveland and going all the way up into Canada, 700 miles north of the border. And right now I can't think of the name of that town. And then getting on a plane and flying to British Columbia. And that was to do just a couple of sportsman shows. Uh, and then I got to fish while I was there in British Columbia, you know, caught salmon, that sort of thing. 
so it, it opened the world for me, even though I wasn't making money. But it, you know, it got me to know about uh, all the places that I, that I love and then we're going to have fish. Well, then Garcia was the largest fishing tackle company in the world. They didn't manufacture anything. They were the ones who imported the Mitchell reel after the war, 1948. And it became the largest selling fish piece of fishing tackle in the world. So in 1958, I think it was, I had met the Garcia people at the sportsman shows and they offered me a job. And I ended up saying, well, I, I can't, I, let's see, I'd gotten married. Well, let's go back. When I left the dancing school, I went to Florida, which was where I met my first husband. At the sportsman shows, I got to get associated with Ashway Lines. Oh, the silk lines? Yes. Yeah, I have yeah. one. They're amazing. Yeah. yeah. Ashway Line and Twine, and they made linen lines for deep sea fishing. And this is now in the 40s. And I met Charles Ritz, came to this show, and he talked me into... This is when I was still still in the dancing school. 1948, I met Charles Ritz. He talked me into going to Paris for the first uh, tournaments after the war, the first national and international tournaments. And then there was going to be the national tournament was in France and the international was in London. And so at that time I was making money in the dancing school and so I could go. Right. So my mother went with me because she wanted to go to Scotland and visit her her uh, family. And Charles Ritz was quite a remarkable man, but his father was Caesar Ritz, and they had the Ritz Hotel. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I got to meet and greet people in the fishing world over there. A.J. McLean was the fishing editor of Field and Stream, and he took a picture of me, caught my caught my uh, fly up in a tree on a little fishing <laughs> contest and I'm up on a f- on a fence with or in a bridge with my feet you know up in the bridge trying to reach up and he used that in his column <laughs> so that, that gave me a little fame and Charlie was uh he was married to a former Zigfield girl and we went out for dinner one night she drove we had a flat tire he stayed in the car and she changed the tire <laughs> And he he wrote a book called The Fly Fisher's Life, and he had casting instruction, and he put the words high speed, high line. So these were days when no one knew exactly how they were casting. They said there were no mechanics, really. It was all, watch me do it like this. Mm -hmm. But I cast much like his idea of, of the high line business because I lifted my arm up. Now, there's another thing. When I was taught to cast in 19, let's see, 1937, they put a book under your arm. And so your elbow did not move, and it was only back and forth with your forearm and hand. And as a 10-year-old, I could do that up to the, the targets went from 20 feet to 50 feet. I could cast that way up to about 35 feet. And then I would have trouble. Here I am, a 10-year-old. Of course I had trouble casting (laughs) far. Anyway, I ended up dropping the book and lifting my elbow on the cast. And nobody else did that in those days. 
And when I went to my first national in 1943 in Chicago, there was one other person who did that. We were the only two in the whole tournament that lifted our elbow on a cast. It lifted and lowered, which is what you really need to do so you're not restricted. So then we went from, from Paris, we went to London. I remember getting seasick crossing the English <laughs> Channel. <laughs> London was still on war rations. We had whatever eggs. They weren't eggs. They were dried eggs or some some terrible thing. Because I remember eating so well in Paris. <laughs> right. Yeah, you, know, you would have. Raspberries and cream and all sorts of stuff. And poor England <laughs> who was still suffering. Uh, but we then I was in the... The international tournament, and I ended up winning the five-eighths ounce accuracy plug against men and women, professionals and amateurs. They still hadn't kind of separated everything there. Mm -hmm. And I I got to meet Marvin Hedge, who was a big influence in this country. He was the one who introduced the uh, double hall to the casting world. They were very, very good young male casters from Sweden who just, on their back cast, they just laid it all the way out parallel to the ground, you know, I mean, at, at a very low level. They were just full of energy and muscle and all that sort of thing. So that was a highlight, that, that 48. Then back in this country, I went, started going to nationals in 1943, and I went from then until 1960 with time out for having a baby or something like that or getting married, whatever. Uh-huh. In 1951, I went into, and and I'd started, my God, there's, what a life I've had. (laughs) (laughs) In casting, we, you know, the Patterson Casting Club was was very active, but there was a man there now who did teach me how to cast. The first man who worked with me, with the book under the arm, was, now, come on, Joni, it's all in the wrist, you know. Oh, no, Okay. okay. That was it, right. And then this other man took over when I was 16, and he lifted his elbow, and he taught me how to hover a fly over Mm. a target and then just drop it in after I'd seen it sitting over the target. So he gave me my style without ever doing anything more than saying, do it like this. (laughs) You know, no explanation. But he was a beautiful distance caster. And I, again, I had a car when I was 17. You know, the dancing school gave me money, all that sort of thing. And so I uh, would take him. He had a candy store. He had no money. He had had a motorcycle at one time, but not when I was there. And he made bamboo rods. So he was this beautiful distance caster, no car, you know, gave me the casting help. So I would take him practicing. So I was his ghillie. A distance casting. He would cast out 150 feet and I would pull the line back in and lay it out on a tarpaulin on a dock, you know, and then he would do it again. So I got to see this beautiful, beautiful casting. On his bamboo. Bamboo rug. Yeah. 150 feet on a bamboo with a regular oh, they line. They go, oh, they went farther than that. The men went longer than that. Were these? With not a regular line. No, okay, the line shooting. had to be specially they had to make their lines out right. of pieces of silk line. Okay. And then each one would have different tapers to make it, you know, work best. His name was William Taylor. And so I said, I want to do this, you know, having been involved, being a dancing teacher and everything. And here is this very physical thing. I want to do this. Well, I could hardly get the line off the water with his rod. The line would have been had 50 foot, 52 foot head. Bamboo rods were heavy. The limit of the weight of the line was one and a half ounces. 
I mean, that's what he had set up. When I couldn't handle that, he made me a rod that would cast one and three-eighth ounce line. And I could pick that off the water, shoot line on the back cast, and make a forward cast because I couldn't false cast it. It was too heavy. Mm. So that's what my practicing was, was picking up that 52-foot head, shoot on the back cast, shoot forward. And... In 1960, I cast 161 feet with that outfit. Wow. Can you explain to me what the lines would look like back then? Because now it's almost like a chunk of lead core, T14 or something, and monofilament. (laughs) What was it then? Well, they looked like fly lines look. They were braided, you know, braided of silk. Mm Mm-hmm. So were they they really chunky in the front and then extremely narrow as running lines? Well, the running line was monofilament. Oh, it was monofilament back then. Okay. Monofilament came in in 46 from the California, the San Francisco Club had a secret weapon at the 1946 National in Indianapolis. And they took the first five places in the distance (laughs) casting with the monofilament. That's amazing. So you remember monofilament coming into the world. Yes. Wow, I mean, that's yeah. a game changer. I, I know. Right? <laughs> Crazy, okay. And so now before I did that in 1960, back in 1951, there was an event called Fisherman's Distance Fly, and it was a nine-weight line, and I could do that. And I won that event against all-male competition in 1951 in Washington, D.C., I beat the nearest competitor, who was my boyfriend, by one-third of a foot average. You had three casts. I think my long cast was 131. What did they make of you at this time? Well, it gave me publicity. You know, well, I I don't know what they made of me, but I was was there, you know. uh, There were occasional women in it, and, and there were women in the nationals in the accuracy events. They had no, like when I did the 161 feet, it was an unofficial woman's record because there were no women's events. You had to have five people at a national in order to have an event. And just women were just not doing it. So then in, in the Fisherman's Distance Fly, the next year they changed it to lead core. You know, when people say, did, you know, did men ever, do, you know, keep you down because you were a woman? <laughs> They did by introducing lead core. As far as, yes, I never touched it. <laughs> was it just too heavy? I don't like the whole idea of the speed with which it's not graceful. It's not, it's, no, it's lead core. <laughs> fair enough. Totally fair. Because you're a very graceful caster. Well, I have to use my whole body yeah. because I'm, you know, small and weighed 125 probably. I did the 161 feet when I was 34 years old. Prime. Wow. Kind of be you know, knowing what you're doing and that sort of thing. Were the guys nice to you? Yes, they they all were. They basically were. It was just the, the back room. I never got to know about right. <laughs> what was being said. <laughs> Lead court. The back room. That's like our internet today. I wish I didn't get to hear what happened in the back room either. <laughs> so then, what happens? Well, where are we now? So that was 1951. I did all those things. I got married. I turned professional. Then ended up staying out of uh, amateur competition just for one year. If you then did nothing for one year, you could get your amateur standing back. 
So, so I did wow. that. I so, don't think it's like that anymore. No, no idea. That's amazing. I actually, yeah. did, I didn't know that they had any sort of classification like that. Yeah. That you could be a, a pro or an amateur. Yeah. So 1947, I remember that was a Long Beach tournament. I drove across the country in my father's 1938 Chevy with my mother, <laughs> who did not drive. <laughs> and in those days, there were no main highways. So you, when you got to Ohio and Indiana, you were making 90-degree turns around cornfields <laughs> all the time. And then once you got past west of Illinois, you were on gravel roads. Uh, you know, and there were very few places to stay. And so you had to stop. If you, if you found a place to stay, you stopped at three or three thirty in the afternoon before anybody else got <laughs> the rooms and then get up early the next morning to go. So that was great because I got to see the country, you know, and I've, I've just been, I've loved driving. I have driven everywhere in this country. What did your dad think about that? You taking your mom and pursuing your career in well, fly fishing? Yeah, no, he, he he was great about it, even though, you know, as this little kid, I'm afraid of what he's going to think when I'm trying to fly cast. You know, he supported me. In fact, I had to tell him not to brag about me when I won things. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess I won 17 national championships and one international. And, you know, made saw the country, made friends, and, and I got publicity. The first publicity I got was in 1945. And it was a one-page thing in American Magazine. And it was titled, No Flies on Joni. <laughs> I've hated that ever since I did that. What does that mean? Just somebody who doesn't know anything about the thing. They know that you have flies. That's all. They don't, they don't know what to do with it, so they make a silly thing. Okay. <laughs> so then what? All right. So where are we? Um this is so cool. I'm sorry. It's just so cool. <laughs> that was in the 50s. I got married in 54. Okay. I had my son Doug in 56 and my second son Stuart in 62. And you're in your early 30s. Well, I was almost 35 with Stuart. And then my husband had had a, that, that was the other thing. I got to meet him in Florida he had a, a 56-foot schooner. Oh, wow. So the first day I was on it, he was anchored in Miami, on the, up the river, Miami River. We got on it. We I can't wait to do this. We go down to the salt water. I'm out there 10 minutes and I'm seasick. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I've always gotten seasick. But yeah. anyway, we ended up marrying in 1954, and we spent one year on someone else's schooner. So he sold that and we went to work as a team for somebody else who had a 58 foot schooner. Doing and what? my husband was the captain and I was the cook. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I didn't know how to cook. Oh no. Well, did you meet him at one of the shows? No, I met him. I was in Florida. I, so after, when I left the dancing school, I went and lived in the Miami area, you know, rented a little house, a little uh, cottage and all that sort of thing. And Al McLean, that I mentioned him earlier, AJ McLean was in Palm Beach. And I, also I was working, I forgot to tell you about Ashaway. When I worked for Ashaway, I was a goodwill ambassador. At my own expense, I would go drive into a town and I started in New Jersey and my first trip was up through New York State and over into Vermont and New Hampshire and so forth. I would go into the town, 
look up the tackle shops, go there, see if they sold Ashaway tackle. And I would go back to my little motel with my little portable typewriter and type up, you know, what they sold, whether they were happy, what anything they told me. And I get paid four dollars. And I'm paying my own expenses. Right. (laughs) (laughs) In my own car, right. So I did that for Ashaway. And so when I decided to go to Florida, I stopped in places on the way down. And again, it was for Ashaway that I was doing this. And I remember how worried I got to be about traveling alone as a woman in the South. They would make comments like, come back now here. You know, I mean, there was, there was the looks on their faces and everything. I'm sure you still get it now. (laughs) Uh, but so I ended up going there and I had been offered, that's right. I had been offered a job. The man who had the Southeastern United States for Siloflex rods lived in Miami. That's why I was going to Miami. And he offered me a job selling tackle, the Siloflex, which was the best rod, best glass rod on the market in those days. He's going to give me Virginia, West Virginia, Tennessee, and Kentucky. Boy, if I had gone, if I had gotten, he never followed through. When I got, I stayed in his home with his family and everything, but he never gave me the names of the dealers or anything. So I ended up deciding to stay, went to Carl Gable's, and that was then when I, where I met my husband. Got it. Yeah. All right. So where was I? It was uh, that thing. Before the cook. So. All right. I said that we, we were captain and cook. And I remember <laughs> we went out of Newport, Rhode Island on the first day of our job. And I had not done any preparing of things. There were just, I mean, there was an alcohol stove. And one, you know, I had, I had not done, I was newly married. That was the problem here. This is, you know, just after we were married, we, we, we were married in September. We started maybe, you know, October 1st, right? And so we have guests on board and I am the cook and I am seasick lying on the back, on the back, <laughs> whatever you call the back. But, uh, it, it turned out to be uh, interesting. I got so that I could take following seas, but I could never take you know really important water coming from the front. But we did this for fourteen months. Wow! And we started in Rhode Island and ended up racing a hurricane down the New Jersey coast. I remember. And then when we got to Virginia, we went inland to the inland waterway and went down that way. And I remember coming out in northern Florida at midnight one night, and there was iridescence in the water. And so you saw all kinds of shapes with the with the light on them. That it was just one of those wonderful times that you could see. And then we went to Miami, and we uh, had the boat on a river. And I remember having to gain acceptance by everybody, and I climbed up and helped paint at the top of the mast and all that. No, not paint. It was varnishing or something like that. But I would go up and, you know, stand up there half a day at a time. And so that I was accepted as somebody who could be on a boat and in that community. (laughs) Like the cook's not enough. I mean, the cook's (laughs) the most important part. Oh, no, but it's when you're not moving. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, So we got to go to the Bahamas. Were you fishing on these trips? No, my husband was not a fisherman. Okay. 
So and so, I think once we trolled, right. <laughs> something like that. And were you still partaking in any sort of fly fishing activity? I was. I still. Uh, we were married, and yeah. Then and, and so I did. Uh, I did a couple of sportsman shows. Yes, and then, you know, just left left the boat, left Miami, went and did them, and then came back. Coming up, Joan and I speak about Lee fly casting and bikinis. Again, thank you to Watermaster for making this episode possible. On the water, the Watermaster's large surface area, low center of gravity, and open bottom make it an extremely buoyant and stable craft. These same features make the Watermaster highly resistant to wind and current drift. From safe wading to accessible fishing, lightweight transport to reliable rafting, now they've also come through for us here on Anchored. Please check them out at www.bigskyinflatables.com. Every episode of Anchored is recorded on location rather than in a studio environment. So I would like to quickly thank Jason Reef of Freestone Media, who helped me clean up the background noise in this episode. Jason can be found at www.freestone-media.com. In 1959, Garcia Corporation offered me a job. And we lived in Florida, and... I had done some sportsman shows for them over the years, but then they hired a woman named Ann Strobel, and they had her doing the whole, gave her the country, and they gave me Florida because I now had a husband and two kids. So I worked in Florida. I was actually paid to compete in tournaments down there. Wow, that kind of thing by yeah. that by Garcia. By Garcia, yeah. They, and I traveled first class, and we went. I could get have a car pick me up and take me to the airport. Ooh, fancy! Great, but it was a part time job, and I was paid four thousand uh, dollars for what I did because twelve thousand would have been a full time job. Okay, and, and I was only going to give them a third of my time, which I did, and. I remember, though, that I met Ted Williams came to Florida to fish in the Keys, and I got into the Keys fishing. We lived in Florida from 1960 to 67, so I got into the uh, tarpon tournament down there for three or four years, and Ted Williams had a house there, and he ended up offering me a job to work because he was working with Sears Roebuck at the time. So he would give me $5,000 if I worked with them, but I decided not to make (laughs) that switch. (laughs) But Ted was a great fisherman, which I'm sure is is out there. So I traveled around Florida and, you know, drove around Florida and, and went to tackle shops for Garcia and did demonstrations and that sort of thing. Well, in 1966, one day, we, we would come up north in the summer so that the, because it was terribly hot in Florida. And we would come up north. And one day, my boss at Garcia, whose name was Dick Wolf, called me. And he said, how would you like to go giant bluefin tuna fishing with Lee Wolf in Newfoundland? Uh, and you'd heard of Lee Wolf before? I had, yes, Lee was very famous. I had met him at a sportsman show somewhere, but never anything, you know, no time with him. And so while he's saying that, my mind is racing, saying, <laughs> Newfoundland, fog, giant bluefin tuna. I get seasick, you know, and Lee Wolf, I, I know about. He's kind of a hermit kind of a guy. Yeah. And so I hear myself saying, sure, when? <laughs> <laughs> and so that was August of 1966. And, and what with, what Lee had in mind 
was that he wanted a woman who had never fished before to catch a giant bluefin tuna five times her own weight to show that it was a team sport. You know, the angler is only a little piece of the whole thing. It's the captain who runs a boat and the mates who prepare the, the baits and knowing what the whole thing is about. And so they had arranged this. It was for American Sportsman television show. And uh, there was a singer named Kay Starr. And they had chosen her to be that person. She was very small. She'd never fished before. She was famous for a song called The Wheel of Fortune. Oh, okay. And she had kind of a, a raucous voice. But she was very famous at the time. She became ill oh. and couldn't go. And so American Sportsman called Garcia and asked them for one, either me or Ann Strobel. And so he asked me to go, and that was the thing that changed my life. Wow. Now it was a singer who got ill. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so I did, I caught a 572-pound tuna. No way! <laughs> on conventional tackle? Oh, yeah, on, on a nine-weight uh it's linen, Cortland line, as I remember, so it wasn't linen anymore. But deep sea fishing tackle. Okay. So you're trolling baits, you know, squid or mackerel or something yeah. like that. That's huge. It's, yeah. That's it's huge. huge. Yeah, but they've caught them, you know, 1,500 pounds. So I did catch it, and we were not out in the wild ocean. We were in Conception Bay. We had sun. We had schools of tuna playing around and jumping around. I mean, it was incredible that how different it was from what I had feared. Yeah. <laughs> and Lee, I had gone to the tackle show in Chicago before going up there, and Lee asked me to get an artificial squid. And there were only two of them in the whole country. Somebody in California was making them. And his idea was to cast to the tuna to hook them. So he had this 9 uh outfit, and he used a squid, and he cast into the school, and he hooked a tuna. Unfortunately, the tuna finally broke it off, and now he has no squid. So on the way back to our quarters that night, we stop at a grocery store, and he buys two big slabs of bacon, and he carves squid out of each of those slabs of bacon. And he hooks two more tuna on them by casting to them instead of trolling. But he was at that time trying to make a, a get a, a world record on 50-pound test line. So that became an American sportsman show the next year. So that year, though, that Lee and I fell in love during that filming. When you first met him, where, did you have that moment of, wow, or no. did it no. grow through a friendship? No, it, it, it ha- was a sudden happening, but it was be fish, we were fishing. We were, you know, had been on the boat every day for a week or a couple of weeks overall. I guess that, that whole thing was being done. It was a film being made. So we, you know, as I always say, when you're fishing, you bond with the people you're fishing with. And, and so it was a, a bonding in a sense to start with. And then there was just one sudden minute where something happened. That's exactly how I met my husband. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever get any grief over the fact that you were married? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> sure, he was married too. And yeah. I had two little kids. It was a very, very terrible decision for the kids. But it was something that was so overpowering. There was no other way it was going to happen. It was yeah. going to go. And it's, well, you know, you think about people's lives and there are things that you have no control over. 
You you seem like a very strong woman. I've become stronger over the years, <laughs> but um, I don't. I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> well, you you followed your heart. Yeah, but again, because it took took, it was a power that took me over. That same kind of thing. So, I guess I've tried to make up for it with my kids in my later years. Uh, but, it, but it gave them, you know, no one should should have divorced parents. Right. Right. And so, anyway, Lee and I married. We lived in New Hampshire. We what we traveled all the time. We were making films. We went, you know, we went to uh, Europe. We went to Iceland, which is Europe, I guess. We went to Alaska. We went to Panama. We went to Ecuador. You know, yeah. We 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 really were on the road so much. And then he was twenty one years older than I, so I was forty forty one when I married him. He was already in his sixties. And so in, uh, we're married in 67. And so we did all this stuff. And then in, and he taught me Atlantic salmon fishing, which I had never done before. Mm-hmm. That was a whole new world. He, he loved Atlantic salmon fishing, Atlantic salmon more than any other fish. He will tell you why it's better than a steelhead. <laughs> why? <laughs> Uh, for one thing, steelhead want their flies slower. They won't rush to a fly the way an Atlantic salmon will, that kind of thing. That is true. Yeah. yeah. Have you fished for Atlantic salmon? Yes. Where? In uh, Iceland a few times, uh, New Brunswick a few times, Norway, Quebec. Okay, where in Norway? Uh, on the Gala. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I knew a couple of young men who were guides there and so on. Now, are you in Canada <sighs> at this point, fishing for Atlantic salmon? Uh, the first... Uh, first place we fished was on the Miramichi. My mm. first fish was about nine pounds, something mm. like that. And you know, when I, I'm marrying this great salmon fisherman, he's going to teach me how to be a great salmon fisherman. And he did not. It's like, you have to figure it out yourself. <laughs> he put me in the places where there were salmon, you know, so, <laughs> uh, so it, it's been, it's been a great thing. We met, met wonderful people through the, uh, that salmon world. In fact, next week they they're going to have a they have a big event in New York every November, and I'm this year I am the honorary chairman of this because they are going to be honoring a woman, and they're honoring women in general. They've asked all the women salmon fishermen to send pictures of themselves with fisher fishing, and they're going to put them on the back of the auction paddles. <laughs> and who, where, where is this? Atlantic Salmon Federation. They're, they're headquartered in New Brunswick. They need to raise money because so many bad things are happening to Atlantic Salmon. Maybe yeah. you can start with climate change, but then you also have Quebec has always allowed you to kill the big salmon when the other four provinces stopped that. Mm-hmm. And next year, they're going to have a catch and release in Quebec for at least the first half of the season. And then they're going to reconsider whatever it is. But we kill about 40,000 salmon a year. And we're trying to get the Greenlanders not to kill them commercially. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, you're killing (laughs) 40,000, whatever. So this controversy, but it's, it's, you know, it's it's all about uh, so many factors are are working on the Atlantic salmon. There just aren't as many as there used to be. Right. You know, the best of it was in those years that Lee was fishing, you know, in the mid 
uh, mid-century, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Is it true that Lee was one of the major forces behind stopping retention of salmon? Or, or behind? I know um, what you're talking about. It, in yeah, 1939, Lee wrote in his first book or second book, a game fish is too valuable to be caught only once. Yes. So there's finally, you know, finally, 1984 was when they first did the catch and release of Atlantic salmon in, in, uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, you know, the, the other mm-hmm. provinces. Yes. So Lee was always working on that. So then what's your business at this point? Is the school in place yet? The school, we we were married in 67. We opened the school in 79. We moved here in 78 in order to do that. Mm -hmm. So we lived in New Hampshire and we, we did a couple of schools for somebody in Colorado and loved the idea because I am a teacher more than I'm anything else. And so we started talking about having a school in New Hampshire, but New Hampshire does not have good waters for bugs. They're too acidic. Mm. And so Lee was invited to be the speaker here in Roscoe in 1977 for the uh, Federation of Fly Fishers at a big conclave. And he was a speaker. So we came in June. And we were just flabbergasted at all the people. We even saw people in waders on the street. And and there was a a no-kill section of the beaver kill. And it was two hours from New York, and we looked at each other and said, this is the place. So we went back to New Hampshire, put our house on the market, and we're here within the year. We opened, we moved here on May 4th of 78. We opened the school on May 4th of 79. We had to find property, which was hard to do. He needed a place for his airplane. (laughs) All those things. So he finally found this beautiful property. You said it's eight, how many acres? Well, it was a hundred when we bought it. I've given my sons 34 acres at the lower end. So they'll always have a foot in the Weaverkill Valley. Right. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) So we did. We opened that in the next year and Lee actually gave a salmon course. Even here, we don't, don't have salmon here, but he could draw, he could tell a story about the romance of the salmon coming in to the, you know, the rivers of their birth, not eating, going through that whole, you know, coming in up to September and going through the whole winter with no food, you know, deteriorating, all that sort of thing, and then going back out again to grow and, and so on. And, and, and so it's a spawning thing that he, you know, he made the romance out of this salmon being at the door of the people, the women he wanted for a long time. (laughs) So we did that for one or two years. And then I realized that I had to, I had started to write about casting. We didn't talk about that in in sound. We only talked about that before. That's right. Sorry to make you repeat yourself. Yes, well, all right. Um, I had written a couple of articles like do tournament casters actually fish? Yeah. <laughs> you know that kind of stuff. But when we once we had the the fishing school, I realized that in order to be a good teacher, I had to be able to talk to the student about particular parts of the cast. And so I wrote a column for Fly Rod and Reel for twenty two years oh, wow. on casting. The first book came out in 1987, and it was Lee and Nick Lyons, 
wonderful publisher who talked me into doing it. I thought you didn't write a book until you knew your subject thoroughly, which I did not. I was just learning and learning. And so having to put that three-dimensional activity into print was forced me to analyze as I never would have otherwise. And so we had this little casting rod, which Leif had that thought as soon as we were married, and we then we both worked for Garcia. He made films for them, but then we also did the rubber chicken circuit. We went to all the TU, you know, meetings in the country, traveled. That was part of what kept us busy. And so I would be demonstrating casting with, we called it flyo. It's a three foot rod with packaged yarn for line. And Lee had said, you know, golfers can practice hitting balls indoors. Why can't a caster, an angler learn how to practice casting? So we took the tip of a fly rod and I went out to a, a yarn store and bought five different weights of yarn and we found the perfect yarn, which was the package yarn that Hallmark made. And so that became a product for Garcia and they named it Flyo, which right. is a dumb name, but nobody <laughs> came up with anything better. And so by using Flyo, I, I started to analyze my own casting and that was how I was able to start writing. And after I wrote that book, nobody said anything for about five years. Nobody knew what I was talking about. Because everybody taught casting by saying, watch me, do it like this. <laughs> or that a man would go behind a woman and take her arm over the shoulder, and then they'd swing the arm out to the side. I mean, it was awful the way <laughs> casting was being taught. <laughs> so um, so the, the book came out in 1987. As I said, nobody said anything for five years. But I was starting, I was then writing for Fly Rod and Reel. And I remember the first the first article. And I had a good illustrator. name was Gordy Allen. And after it was out and printed and everything, and I, oh, there it is. The first thing that really, really matters. And then some weeks later, I realized it's not right. It's not accurate. What well, wasn't right about it? <laughs> it had to do with the, the power snap, <laughs> the, the, the the loading move in the power snap. It, it was the words were reversed or something like that. I mean, it was oh. just something that, that I was so thrilled with seeing something of mine there. <laughs> so I had maybe uh, four or five illustrators over the years. That was always the hardest part because other people did not illustrate the way we were illustrating. I was not, I was using the parts of the cast is what I wanted people to concentrate. Before that, all the casting books had photographs of men in khaki shirts and pants and hats. And they would show you several photographs and you had to watch them see, did their hand move from this photograph to the other one? And mine was all about what the arm was doing, the parts of the arm and so forth and so on. So it was tougher to get an illustrator for that. But I always felt that that, you know, that was what helped, helped. But all of that helped me understand. I'm still learning about casting. Every time I teach, I learn. No, I love to hear that. <laughs> you know, if it's, it's a way of teaching, a way of, of presenting something. And when my mind was doing nothing else, it was always on how to teach casting. I went, I went to Florida in the winter to cat, to fish for bonefish and tarpon and permit and all those things. That's another whole facet of, of my life. But I was driving home from Florida all by myself when I was a widow. And I suddenly thought of the way to present when to use tension in your cast and when to have a relaxed hand and how could you show that 
because that is the most common mistake or error that people make and they never figure it out. They're always too tight. All right. So I got a, a dishwashing sponge, an oval shaped sponge, cut it in half lengthwise. You put your hand on it. When you squeeze it, that's tension. When it's open, that's no tension. Mm -hmm. And that's what I use in the school to show. So you use no tension on the loading move. You use tension on the power snap and then you relax for the follow through. That's what that's all about. Just really quick before we go into, into casting, your casting tape that you had made, it's on DVD now, although I'm sure it was once it was on 1997. Tape. Okay. So it was after Lee. Yes. May I ask just cause we went from you falling in love to your widow. Every Sunday morning before he did a lecture on uh, waiting, he would get into his super cub and go fly over to an airfield on the Delaware River and talk with the guys there who had small airplanes uh, and, and, and you know, just do his little bit of Sunday morning flying. And then he'd come back for the rest of the school. So we were able to have the airplane right here on the property. It had a 2,000-foot grass runway. It's one of the reasons we chose the property, because he had to have that airplane nearby. <laughs> and then uh, on the morning of April 28th, he did. he wasn't at the school every minute, but he did some tying of flies. Lee invented, now I've got to go back here, in 1952, Lee invented plastic-bodied flies. And the idea was that it was after the war and people were doing, uh, the mechanical people were doing welding and all sorts of stuff. So the, his idea was instead of it taking so long to tie a fly with all the handwork you had to do, you start out with a plastic body. He had a, a solvent and you would dip the feathers into the solvent and then put them on the plastic and the solvent would work on the plastic and you would embed the feathers and the hair or whatever it was going to be into the plastic body. Oh. And then you could have assembly lines. That was his idea so that you could not have to spend so much time tying flies. And that he he actually patented it in 1952. He's so he was so innovative. He huh? was so far ahead of his time. I mean yeah. Did he get off on, on breaking the boundaries or, or thinking outside the box? Was oh, that his always. thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, you know, you could have a whole <laughs> podcast on Lee. Yeah. So where were we? So he's invented this plastic fly. Yes, right. And, and he, he died with it never having become terribly popular. They had a surface stone fly for Atlantic salmon that is now being copied by somebody doing it with thread. But that was something, he was always able to sell some of those surface stone flies, but he was never really in the business of selling flies. <laughs> right. But that was one of his big things. Well, the night before he died, we're talking April 28th, 1991, and it was our first weekend school. On Saturday night, when he, at, at the end of the night, he would always go through his vest and show people what was in there. And then he would tie two flies, usually a, a wolf fly, and then a tiny little number 28. That was the smallest. He also fished with those 28s for salmon. And he caught a 10-pounder and a 12-pounder in the last five years of his life. That was the, those were the only flies he used. 
and he never tied with a vice. He tied them in his fingers without oh, a vice. Cool. So here he is at age 86 on that April night, and he tied it. And then actually, the, then he would put names in a hat. And the, the 28 went go to a man who worked for Dan Rather, the newscaster. Right. And so, fine. All right, the next morning, he tied some flies that were based on the plastic body that he had invented. These were saltwater flies, so they he was making long ones. He made probably eight or nine. Then he came down to the school, gave a waiting lecture, then got into his airplane and flew over to Hancock area to uh, visit with the guys and also to be recertified for his flying license. So he went up with a an inspector and... Somewhere as they were coming back, something happened to him, and they had a crash. And, and by the time the inspector realized that something had happened, he probably had a massive stroke because he did have fibrillations, and he had been told there was a danger of a stroke. But, of course, we all ignored that in denial. And so the airplane crashed. Lee was dead, and the inspector had injuries, but two years later he was back, you know, teaching people to fly and so on. And so then I had to run the school. We had instructors. When Lee was talking, those instructors were absorbing every word he said. When it was my turn to talk about casting, they would go out on the porch and have a smoke. (laughs) But I finally, I got, I I had one instructor who got turned on to casting. And he ended up being top instructor. He ran the school for, he was the head instructor for a couple of years. And he got, got the other, the other instructors to pay more attention, let's say. But then when Lee died, then I had the school to do myself. And that's when I really grew up. I was 64 when he died. And I think it, you know, it took me six or seven years to really feel confident that I could do this all by myself. Uh, but it was so it was a, a period of growing because when you have, you know, a challenge, you grow. Yeah. <laughs> so that was all part of that. And so I then, in, that, that was in 91. So I was writing for Fly Rod and Reel at 22 years. And in 1992, a wonderful thing happened. Robert Redford came out with a movie. Yes, he did. And I'm often given credit for bringing women into the sport, but Robert Redford brought women into the sport. There's no doubt about it. He had the beautiful places we fish, the beautiful mesmerizing loops of unrolling, and the attractive men who I used to have all to myself. (laughs) And I did have them all to myself. There were so few women out there. So for... We had about, in our, the high good years of our fishing school, we would have about 180 people come to the school. And after that movie, from the year 1992 to 2002, we had more women than men in the school for those years, 12 years. So it's just, you know, I'm so glad I've lived this long to see women in the sport. You know, and your generation now with all of the things there are to promote and, you know, all the internets and all those good things, if they're good, <laughs> you know, are going to bring in more women. And and I'm just thrilled that I've lived long enough to see that happen. Oh, it's you know? so nice to hear you yeah. say that. Yes. 
you know, because it was, you know, I was happy being in the man's world, but, you know, but no, we love fishing this for the same reasons the men do, because of the places, the clean water, most beautiful places in the world. When people ask me, what's my favorite fish? I say, whatever, whichever species I'm fishing for. Yeah. <laughs> because they all have something special and different to offer. And my favorite place to fish is wherever I'm fishing. That is <laughs> the same reason. Great answer. Yeah, you know, but you have to come to that. You don't, in the beginning, you're sure you know where you, all these things because you're limited in what your experience is limited. And so it's, uh, it's been the best people I've ever met in my life have been through fly fishing. And there's just no doubt about it. And I've been on the board of the Atlantic Salmon Federation and the IGFA, International mm-hmm. Game Fish Association, which now has a catch and release category for world records, mm-hmm. which is great. And then we have a Catskill Fly Fishing Center Museum here. And Lee and I were founders of that back in about 1981 or two, somewhere in there. And that has grown. And we have a, a new building in which there is a wolf gallery. And so that's where there's a... You know, dozens of things of leaves up on the walls, and they and I'm on another wall, and and it's a great, uh, very large room. We can have events there, and we uh, so we have a museum, and then we have activities. We have um, a gathering of the makers of bamboo rods, and that's really nice because it's about like 170 of them were there this year in wow. September. Yes, they come from everywhere. Okay, now is the school still running? Yes, when I turned 80, I decided that uh, I I wanted to do something with the school. And my son, who had started the, with Lee, had started the Royal Wolf products. Now, there was another thing. Lee invented the triangle taper fly line. And the triangle taper, people thought it was shaped like a triangle instead of being round. I'm responsible for the name because when you drew the taper on paper, it was a long triangle. And it was just like the original horsehair lines. You started out with a small diameter and you kept adding hair until it was gradual. So it's, you know, it's a wonderful roll casting line to start with, but he took it and made it into the triangle taper line, which I think I've had so many experiences where I have tried a rod with a line on it and then I've taken that line off and put the triangle on it and the triangle taper brings it to life in a way that the other ones don't because it has no belly. I guess that's the other thing we should say. The ordinary line has a tapered section, a same diameter belly, and then a back taper, the forward taper lines I'm talking about now, and then a lighter running line. Right. And the triangle taper is a continuous continuing taper starts small and just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you've reached the maximum you're going to use like it could be as little as 23 feet or as much as 50 feet depending on the design of the thing and then you have a very quick back taper or you have a back taper and then the running line after that but it's the idea of no belly no level section so your son is handling all of so that. So he is Royal Wolf. Yes. Okay, got it. So it's that he agreed. I remember the night we did this. You know, he agreed to take over the school. So I gave him the school. And this is when you were eighty. Yes. Okay. And so he had was able. To, I have wonderful instructors. The strength of our school 
is that they are all using the the mechanics that I have developed. Mm -hmm. In most schools, you just take somebody who's a good fisherman and put them in the school, and then they teach the way the way they want to. Our te our teachers all teach the same method, the same you know words, except they they come up with different words. Of course, they put it different ways. So it's been my instructors. I'm so proud of them, and they stayed even though I stopped. They still come. I have one instructor from New York State, and everyone else is from somewhere else. So it's the consistency of the teaching that makes our our school good. Uh, I have one instructor whose name is Dave Brandt, who's been there about let's see, the school is thirty five or six years old now, isn't it? From seventy nine to fifteen, all right, that's thirty six years. Whew. Yeah, and Dave has been with us close to thirty years. This wow. one instructor, yes. He's a wonderful trout fisherman, fishes on the East Branch, goes to Labrador for brook trout. And that's Labrador is a place that Lee discovered the large, large brook trout um, in 1956 or so, somewhere around there. My husband Ted knew Lee, uh, and when when Ted Ted was a lawyer, when he was in law school, he spent his summers flying with Lee in Newfoundland and Labrador. Oh wow! And taking film. And so forth. There's a film called Three Trout to Dream About that, that Ted was the photographer on. And so that was how I ended up meeting Ted. Okay. When we ahead. went to Alaska, we would stop in Seattle, of course, and um, have dinner with Ted and his wife. And then Ted, you know, Lee died in 91, and I think Ted's wife died closer to the, the late 90s. But he would come to the tackle show. And so he called me up one day, and he said, I'm interested in you, not as a fly fishing instructor, but as a woman. <laughs> my mouth literally dropped open, because I figured I would be alone the rest of my life. I intimidate men. <laughs> and so that was the beginning of that romance. <laughs> what, what did you say, though? What do you well, I was here and he was in Seattle. So, <laughs> so we ended up, he, I, I had, by that time, I had purchased a condominium in Isla Mirada. I love Isla Mirada. The Keys are just such a wonderful place. We go January, February, March. That's, yes, that's, it all makes sense. Yeah. So he came and visited me in Florida and we went fishing. But, he, but if the fact that he was a fisherman, you know, I could never have been married to a non-fisherman. Right. <laughs> And so, and he's a very good trout fisherman. He understands the bugs because he ties flies. Ah, uh, right. Right. And, and I think I may have said that I had never got into fly tying because I wasn't turned on by the materials. But right. he is, you know, no matter what, this house, you have no idea how many feathers are in this house. <laughs> <laughs> well, looking around your home, I was saying earlier when I was kind of walking around, I'm fascinated by all the history that's here. I mean, this is It's a almost place. a museum, yes. Yeah, it really is almost like a museum. Yeah, it is, yes. So let's talk about this book. I cannot get over your book. I'm sorry. I've read it four times. It's New Fly Casting Techniques. When did you write it? You mean how long did it take? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, forever. Yeah. <laughs> forever because of always being busy. God, when... Well, I, it's, you know, it's still the same mechanics that I had back in 1987. Mm. But I also, I wrote a book just for women, uh, 1991, I think. Okay. And I wrote a book on accuracy. 
that, that was the Nick Lyons said I needed to write a book on accuracy. The book for women was too far ahead of its time. Now is the time that book should be out, and maybe you're the person who could write it. I'll have to read it, and then yeah, well, you can't it find it. It's site. out of print. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Have but you th- thought about going back to print with it again? No. <laughs> maybe now's the time, not for me to write it, but for you to re-release it. Oh, yeah, but th- you would, you know, th- that many years has gone by. You have to write a new book. You can, you know, you're still talking about basic things, but you have to have a new book, and there are many more women in the world now. All sorts of things. That's for your generation. Well, I'll use your book as my foundation. <laughs> no, you've got much more because I, I, no, it was limited. I was not steelhead. I wasn't steel. Was I steelheading a little bit? Yeah, but I wasn't spay casting. I say spay yeah. casting. Lee taught me an oval cast, yeah. and that's what in my book I have one chapter on an introduction to spay casting. But I have never become a good spay caster. I've never put in the time. You have to put in the time, period. Yeah. <laughs> As we know. So that's, you know, I mean, I, I mean, that's the, re- that's the thing you'd have to have in a new book. And I'm a little disappointed in myself that I haven't had the time or taken the time to become good at it. But I understand the principles of it, mm-hmm. except I don't know. I don't know all the fancy things. I only know the basic. <laughs> I don't know if that's but, a bad thing. But it's related to the oval cast. So the oval cast, you're taking the line in a curving power snap underneath the rod tip, and then it rides up. And in the spay casting, you put that piece on the water. You, you've gone under the rod tip, and you put your anchor on the water 180 degrees from where you're going. And so that, that's why I was able to put it in the book because of that connection. Can I ask you something that's, I've always wondered and yes. I've never, I've never been able to ask the appropriate person this question. Historically in the Miramichi region or just in the New Brunswick region, when the Scots came over, they brought with them double hand fly casting. Yes. And I know that historically they didn't really do a lot of spade casts as such. They did more overhead casting with their double hand rod. Uh, but in in Scotland, the, 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 one of the reasons that all came about was because of having things behind you. Exactly that, right. That that you the spay casting. Yes, right. Well, here you would have more room on the rivers. Yes, but one of Lee's things was showing people that he used a six foot rod that weighed less than two ounces for salmon fishing. But that's my question. Yeah, to show that if he could do it, you you didn't need to go get two handed rods, and they weighed a lot in those okay. early days. But I always wondered if. The New Brunswick region had double hand casting, and then when Lee brought in the single hand, the short single hander at six feet long, did it alter the history there? No, it altered. People used nine foot single handed rods. Got it. Yeah. So they had already gone to single hand rods. Well, he, Lee, yeah, then Lee led the way that you did not need a two handed rod to fish for salmon. Right. By what he used. Yeah. He used nine foot rods too sometimes, you know. But, yeah. But he loved the six foot rod. It's just something I've always wondered, yeah. but I've never yeah. had anyone to ask. Okay. Okay. So casting, may I ask you some basic casting yes. questions? Yes. I'm supposed to know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll know the answers. Well, when was this book released? I didn't, I didn't read the date when new fly casting techniques came out. 12, 2012. Okay. So pretty yes. recent. Yeah. But I worked on that a long time. Uh, for, uh, oh, Winston. I haven't talked about Winston. Oh, right. Whoops. Right. Whoops. All right. In 1996, at a 
one of the tackle shows. I got connected to David Ondaatje, who was the owner of Winston. He was probably 32 or 4 or something like that at the time. I was 69 when he hired me. Right. Smart man. <laughs> and the idea of him being a young man willing to take on a, you know, an old lady sort of thing was just great. And what I did for women, uh, I did for Winston, was I introduced the idea of a smaller grip with a little groove in it, a place to put your thumb. Because the, the one big reason that there are so few women of my generation in fly fishing is because of the tackle. It was damned heavy. Yeah. And the grips could be a, an inch in diameter. I mean, they were terrible. So you'd try this and your hand would hurt and say, I'm going to read a book, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And so Winston made rods with my name on them, Joan Wolf favorite, which had the grip with a little groove in it. I we finally I came to a con- an ending, a, an amitable uh, settlement just this past year. Because I'm, I'm old enough now where I have so much to do and you're sitting in my house and I will never get the stuff in this house in the right places, but I'm trying to put things in museums. Lee is now in the Smithsonian. He's also at Yale in the Beinecke Library and we're trying to get uh, some funding to do a, a documentary about him for television. Oh, how amazing. If you're looking to find Joan's book, as well as other great fly fishing material, visit www.aprilvokey.com and click on the reading list tab. There you'll find reviews I've written, including a list of books authored by guests who've been on the show. I hope you enjoy reading them as much as I have. Check back often. This page is constantly being added upon. Okay. You have really changed my casting stroke. All right. And at first it was frightening because <laughs> it's like a golfer learning a new swing. Sure. And I fell apart. Yeah. And my husband. So did I when I had to change from yes. Mr. Tracy with the book under the arm to yeah. Mr. Taylor with this. <laughs> right. It took me a year. Okay. okay. And that's what's happened. Yeah. My husband, he looked at me one day and he said, what? has happened to you. You used to cast so smooth and now you're a disaster. <laughs> and I and I just have stuck with it. And now finally, I've got my stroke back. But my style has changed I, upon reading your book. I still have my own style, but I was once extremely um, sidearm. Mm-hmm. And now I've really found, and I still do cast sidearm, but I found that I do a lot more, Verti- more, vertical. more of a vertical mm-hmm. stroke. Mm-hmm. But some things that you've done that have really changed me that I just want to highlight for the listener because I think that they'd really find this um, beneficial when they read your book is my hand and really focusing on the muscles in my hand. I've always had... Good. Yes. All right. In the book, I tell you to put the heel of your hand on mm-hmm. top. That way you can get every finger involved. Yes. And I keep thinking, did I say that clearly? You did. Cr- I did. You did. You All did. Right. And right. so for me, because I do look at my hands, mm-hmm. okay. they're strong, big hands. Yep. And I was always really insecure about them mm-hmm. until I realized that they have a purpose yes. of casting. <laughs> Would you mind taking a moment and just explaining to my listener why it is, why the hand is so important to their stroke. Because the hand on the power snap creates the loop. Now, okay, can you explain the power snap to my listener? Well, we didn't explain anything. All right. There are two main moves with follow through. The first move I call a loading move. It begins the loading of the rod in the stroke. And what it basically is doing is getting the line leader rod, everything as a unit moving 
in, in the direction of your target. Once you have got to 90 degrees, and, and there's no tension in that, you're just moving, it's a positioning. When you get 90 degrees from your target, meaning that the rod shaft under your thumb, coming out of your thumb, is 90 degrees from the target, perpendicular, then we do a power snap. And the power snap is a quick movement of the forearm and hand, and you're going to start by pulling back on your little finger and make pull back a little finger, next finger, next finger, finishing with a strong thumb, ending with the thumb pointing at the target. That will unroll the line above the water, grace and land lightly. So the loading move gets everything started at 90 degrees. You're now going to use power, and it's going to come out of your hand. And this is where if you were using a sponge, we mentioned a little bit, you would make every finger crush that sponge. So you are squeezing it. So your power snaps are squeezes on the back cast. And it took me 20 years to figure this out. And the back cast, when I wrote my first book, I remember sitting and looking at my wrist and saying, how much of my wrist am I using? God, it's just a tiny little bit, but it's not this, it's not that. And it, and it had nothing to do, it has nothing to do with what you do with your wrist. All you have to do on the back cast power snap is squeeze your hand and you stop and that rod butt pops out to 45 degrees is there at your max for anything. And, and actually you've started with the rod. We didn't go into the start. The start, you're going to have the rod butt in line with your forearm. If you have skinny forearms, you might touch. If you have bigger forearms, it's just parallel. And when you have line on the water, the loading move to take the line off the water is to lift the line sweetly with no great tension to the leader connection, the line leader connection. That's the end of the loading move. Now you're going to snap back with your forearm. You're going to squeeze your hand. And you're only going to do that as long as it takes to get the fly out of the water. You don't need another quarter of an inch of motion. Once that fly is out of the water, you've got your perfect back cast. And the word drift comes in. Drift is following through backward. And so what drift is, if you took your finger and put it under your elbow (laughs) and lifted the elbow two inches, that's drift. Drift is a repositioning move. You can change planes. If I wanted to change from a vertical plane to a horizontal plane, while that line is unrolling, it's my drift time. So I would end the power snap as the fly came out of the water. And during drift time, I would rotate my arm and elbow down so I went to horizontal and then made the forward cast horizontally. So drift time. If it weren't for drift, I would never have maintained my love of casting. Mm-hmm. Drift is almost like dancing to me. Yeah, because it flows. It, it flows. There's right. no, there's, it, it fills in instead of, of finishing your back cast and stopping and saying, how long do I wait? Well, I've got an answer for that too. Right. What you do is you stop that strong enough with that squeeze so that there's a little jerk in the rod. It, it, it's a snap and the little jerk, that's not the word, but on your power snap, when you're just squeezing your hand, you're shocking the rod. When the shock has dissipated, you come forward and you'll have perfect timing. Never turn your head or your shoulders to look at your back cast. If you want to see what a cast looks like, you put it out on the ground in horizontal plane on grass and you slide the 
the, the line along the grass for your loading move. You get 90 degrees from your target, power snap it, and then you follow through. And follow through has a, a use in uh, reach cast, mm-hmm. for instance. So there are, every part of the cast has more than one use, one more, more than one simple use. You know, but anything you see anyone else do with the rod, you can do if you know those mechanics. They have never failed me. And my listener might not know this, but you are credited as being, and quite rightfully so, one of the best casters in the world. And when they talk about the elites, and I see your face right now, I, I can see you want to fight me on this, but they say Lefty, Ray Jeff, Wolf, Krieger. I mean, I know there's more, but those are those are the, kind of the top names that keep being referred to. And Joan, it has nothing to do with you being unique in your field as far as, I hate saying this, but being a woman. I mean, your casting style in itself is unique. Do you... It shouldn't be unique. <laughs> but, but well, you're is. right. It is. I, I guess it. Yes, and I. And this is one of the things about getting older that bothers me. I should still be writing articles. <laughs> I, you know, not not uh, not a book. But my book says it all. But articles for for in the fishing magazines that people are more likely to see. They're not going to go out and buy books all the time or sit down and read books all the time. But I I see things. You know that I know I can fix that. <laughs> is what I see. So, as I said, that's for your generation, my dear. Slide load. Uh-huh. That's the difficult one to describe. <laughs> that's okay, but we don't have to describe it. Well, it, yeah, the slide load is that when the rod hand is finished with its job and you've power snapped, now your line is unrolling and you're, well, we, this goes into double hauling. Most people haul through the whole stroke. I haul only with the power snap. Okay. But, the haul is exactly as long as the power snap is long in time. Uh, we've got a back cast, so we're lifting to the leader. We're power snapping the fly out. Our, our left hand has pulled the line, has hauled. And now while the line unrolls, the left hand is giving back on the haul. However, it is finished. They don't finish at the same time. So you start the rod hand coming forward while you're still giving the line back with the left hand. And when, and they come together at that 90 degree spot, then you do your second haul for the forward cast. So it's, I call it slide loading because it looks as if you're sliding the rod down the line. And that's how you have to, that's what you look for as you're trying to understand this. And I really feel that my longest casts come from that because there is, it comes to be a sharp stop where everything is electric and, and boom. And I can tell you that for me, yes. my distance has improved with that. With the side load. It was substantial. How did you come up with that? No. People did it. And, and Lee had taken film of uh, Johnny Dykeman who was, uh, he was the boyfriend I beat by one third of a foot average. Oh, okay, cool, yeah. <laughs> and, and he, there was a film and Lee that made of Johnny Dykeman. And I remember standing, I picture myself standing in that fishing school, seeing him do this. And it, that his hand, you know, that he was, the rod was starting forward while he was still giving line back. And I, I immediately, you know, got a rod to see if I did that. And I did. So there it was. So then it was a matter of describing it or talking, giving it a name, all that sort of thing. So I think that anyone 
who does millions, <laughs> thousands of uh, halls and shooting line in the back cast will eventually come to that because mm-hmm. it's a thing of feeling. Yeah, you don't say I'm going to do this. You feel it happening. Right. You know. Yeah. So, so something. So that that. No I one's ever asked me that question before. <laughs> oh, really? I don't think about well about how it came about. Yeah. I wanted to say something. I said, come back to a stroke. Yes, you wanted to explain the stroke or stroke no, length, maybe, something. was it? Stroke length. Oh, yes. There are, and it's in the book, the positions that you stand in. So you're mm. facing the target. You can stand with your feet together. You can have one foot in front of the other. Backhand, you put the right foot forward, all that stuff. But when you want longer casts, you are going to turn sideward to your target with your feet separated and you're going to use your hips to make to add to your stroke because you can only go this as far as you can go here. And the other thing is that stroke is diagonal. And that's the business when we were talking about the line hitting the rod. That's when it's in a straight here. It's got to have that lift. That's when the line goes over the rod tip. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's diagonal. All right. So the other thing is now you're going to and also you need to be able to cast from nine o'clock to Nine o'clock to three o'clock. You know, not, you don't just say this or this. It's got to be any place in between that you need. So now here's your stroke here. All right. Or you could say here. And now here's your stroke with hips. Right. Yeah. So you're simply, your, your rotation is not so much that you're drawing an arc. No way. You're just simply keeping it. Everything's straight. Yeah. I just want my, my listener to hear this. So you are, even though you're using your hips and you've, now you're in an open stance. Mm You are still drawing a straight line path. That's that the path. only way I can draw the straight line is right. with the hips. Right. Otherwise, you know, if I don't do that, it's going to curve. It's got to be here. That's right. See, you're so looking right into your hand. Anyone you can't see right now, when Joan yeah. just tries, can you do that again without turning your hips, Joan? When Joan just tries to draw her her distance cast, which is going to have to have a longer stroke for a longer line, etc., and she doesn't move her hips and draw that arc that you did, the incorrect one. Oh, and she doesn't move her hips. She the elbow will come. Yeah, ultimately, your hands going too far. Everything yeah. drawing an arc. So yeah. it's hard to explain. That's why you just have to read the book. But well, again, if you're taking line off the water, when you you're only going to move those hips to get the leader and fly off, that tells you exactly how long that's that's going to be. Right. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's such a science. Yeah. Um, okay. So then, my last couple questions: Is it true that Lee invented the riffle hitch? The riffle hitch came about because the Brits would leave flies that were so well used. And the flies in those days were made, they had, uh, I think they had a gut, gut, le- gut, yeah, gut eye. This is what I heard. Okay, yes, yeah. yes. And they get would get broken. Right. Right. And so they left them with the guides, you know, in Canada. Yeah. And so they came up with the riffling hitch. Ah, okay. Yeah. But Lee was the one who publicized it. Got know, it. Because he had that, that's what he did. He made films, he wrote about everything he did. Right. You know, that's why he was a force. Yeah. So the eyes were of the hook were broading off, if you yes. will. And yeah. so they could exactly. use the flies by tying the riffle hitches. Yep. Genius. Yep. Do you ever wonder what your career might have been like if you had the outlets we have today with iPhones and... <laughs> and <laughs> I hope I would have been smart <laughs> enough. <laughs> no, you, you would have. Would you have utilized all the social media and all the things that we have today? To get the word out and spread it? That's a, that's, I don't think I can even answer that question because I think the way I want to learn is going to be in 
prints, as I said earlier, so I can go back and look at it and figure out the meanings and so forth rather than than just this quickness. Yeah. yeah. Quickness has no depth. You know, that, that's the problem there. Would things have been different for you if there was the world of immediacy today with everybody who can can video you? Would you still have wanted to be public? I would guess not. <laughs> A little bit like you were saying things. Yeah, there are too many things that are distracting and are not important it, that's coming out of this world. Yeah. yeah. That's why. So, yeah, so finding your way, you're going to have to, you know, eliminate a lot of things that don't matter to you and take away from you. you know, like like the the bikini thing. And it just demeans us it's women. Tough, it demeans I, women. I have a photo on the internet of when I was in the Bahamas and I, sometimes I I mean I live in Australia half the year. I have fished in a bikini before. And, um, and I can't even live that one bikini photo down. Right. And it just is. I mean, when we were speaking about bikinis earlier, I was talking about having a television series being in a bikini. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I've, the bikini to me, I don't know, that's a whole different podcast. In no, you, do, you would do that because you wanted a tan. <laughs> that's, and that's the same <laughs> that's thing. All. And no. when I fish in a bikini, it's because I want a tan. Now that I'm getting older, I don't want as much of a tan. Right. But, but you want the freedom too, that comes right. with not having clothes on. But it's well, not for a photograph right. or a cover right. shot right. is all. And I wanted to ask you, because you have one of, whether you like this or not, one of the sexiest photographs I have ever seen in my life <laughs> in a tube top and short shorts. That's all I used to wear. Why? Because, and that's not criticism. No, I'm just, I'm trying to make a yeah, point. Yeah. No. Well, you wear shorts because it's hot and it's summer. Yeah. And I wore short shorts because I didn't look, my legs were heavy enough. They didn't, I didn't look good if I had longer shorts on. Period. Fair you know, enough. I, so I even sewed a couple of, cause I was a dance, you know, I had, yeah. but I had heavier legs or muscle legs or whatever. But no, that, and then the, the strapless top was for the suntan. I just, I love it to me. Yeah, that, well, I look at it now and I, I think, my God, that, you know, people could say <laughs> that I was extreme by doing that, but I wasn't trying to do anything except be comfortable, get an even tan, no straps. You know, that's what that was all about. But I don't think you realize how much weight that photo pulls with a lot of us. Because for, with us women, because I know that if somebody ever criticizes me for I don't know. Let's say I did fish in a tube top. Yeah. I could sit. I, I feel quite right in saying, well, Joan Wolf did it. <laughs> exactly. And I just wanted to know. Back if that in was... the dark ages, she did it. <laughs> <laughs> so accepted in the light ages. <laughs> so that is something I just wanted to, I yeah. didn't know if that, cause I know that I look at my bikini photo and I go, Oh God, why did I let that happen? I wanted to know if you look at your photo and say that, or if you say, no, damn right I'm proud no, of I it. I say I always felt I was unattractive. I had this terrible nose. My <laughs> hips were too big. And I look at the, I think, my God, I was much better looking than I thought I was. Okay, it is the sexiest photo I've ever seen in the fly fishing industry <laughs> to date. And I will go on record to say that. You know what? They're going to have it on the cover of the auction book at the Atlantic Salmon Dinner next week. <laughs> Can you believe that? Yes, because they should. It's an, ex- uh, it's no, an excellent photo. I questioned photo. it when they asked me if they could do it. You know, I, I, I did. I can't imagine you wanting to do it. Is what I said. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should be extreme. Are you proud of what you've done? 
I'm starting to be. Yes, because I'm starting to see there is a respect for me that is the best you could ask for that I did not think about or, or you know, whatever, whatever. But somehow uh, I, there's suddenly a feeling, yes, she is now old, but she's done something. There's something, that kind of thing. I'm getting that message that I'm respected. Joan, you're almost 90 years old. I can't imagine making that one, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, you're 89? 89 last week. Yeah. Happy birthday. Yeah. I need you to know, because I may never see you again. Oh, I hope that's not true. I hope yeah. so, too. Okay. But it's it's the reality yeah. is that I'm going to go to Australia soon. I need you to know that you have inspired so, and it's going to make me cry, you have inspired <laughs> so many of us to the point where you you will never know, I don't think, what you've done. And it, God forbid, if something happens to you and you don't ever know what you have done, it will just make me sick. So oh, I need you. Uh-huh. Don't, don't. I just need you to know that that you you should be damn proud because you've made all of us very proud. Well, I, I, what I wish is that I could be with you all more, you know, that we'd be sharing things, you know, because I'm, I'm separated. And the older I get, the more separate separate I become, you know, for, because of having to slow down here and there. So that was one of the reasons I went to the Danbury show on the weekend was because I wanted to be reacting, interacting with people. You know, because this is a very lonesome place. We have no neighbors here. Mm. We only have, you know, my family here. But anyway, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm starting to feel as if I have some value. <laughs> that would you want me to have the feeling of? <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. Okay. Thank you. Is there anything that you would like to add or ask me? We recently, we put uh, Kurt Gowdy and Charles Ritz into our Hall of Fame here at the, the center. And neither one of them had anyone representing them. And so at one point I just got up and said, I'm the only one old enough in this room to have known both of these men. (laughs) And it makes me feel so good to have known that little little piece of the history thing. You know, again, because it it all adds up and the people now coming in have no concept of it. And the young, your generation doesn't care. About history. I'm trying to make them care. Keep trying. That's yeah. what this is all about. I don't care. Because there's only so many fish I can catch before it's just another fish. It's not about fishing. No. <laughs> but when I catch that fish yeah. on a fly that was designed by Hag Brown on a river that he used to love, yeah. yes, right. that brings an entirely different dimension yeah. to me. And that gives you a way of reliving it yourself. I mean, you care about it, and now you can care about it again, even yeah. if the other people don't pick up on it. We're seeing a wave, though. It's coming. It's come, people are starting to care about our history a bit. So okay, good. We're just going to keep at it till they do. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. Thank you for listening.